podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Antioch Church, good morning. How are you? It's so fun to be here. Jade, thanks for that entirely unnecessary and over-the-top introduction. That was really kind of you. And Jonathan, that was by far the nicest exhortation I have ever heard. It was qualified by several degrees. Would you maybe prayerfully consider asking the Lord if perhaps he would have it in his mind every necessary qualification? They will never accuse Antioch Church of not being a kind place. It's a kind place. I'll tell you what uh, I enjoyed so much about uh, y'all's worship this morning. Uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic church up in central Wisconsin. And uh, so just very much like, like this is so, this space is so familiar to me. The church up there was a little bit larger than y'all are, but the space is so familiar. The spirit is so familiar. And then back in 2009, I helped some friends plant a church in Denver, just up the road. And uh, we also kind of grew out of that charismatic root, but we'd made the liturgical turn. So we started incorporating the table and the Lord's prayer and the creeds and the prayers of the people and all that. And one of the hardest things that you can do is take that Pentecostal charismatic root and then combine it with the liturgical richness and do it in a way that doesn't kill either one of them. But you guys are like doing it. Like that prayers of the people was like the best prayers of the people I've ever been in. I'm over there like taking notes. Like we're totally gonna do it this way. It was amazing. So I'm just so thrilled to be here. Um, we are starting New Life East in January, February is kind of when our official launch is. And we're gonna be in Grand Peak Academy. Have you guys seen this building? Do you know Grand Peak Academy? So if you take research all the way out to Black Forest Road and then take a right on Black Forest and a left on Cowpoke. Now Cowpoke is how you know that you're in D49. This is how we know that we're beginning to reach the people of Falcon and the Falconian man is calling us to, to come and... to to come and preach the gospel out east. But Grand Peak Academy is 25,000 square foot, brand new school, just absolutely beautiful. And there's so many people to be reached out there. As you know, if you live on the east side of town, it's just growing like crazy. So uh, as the Lord prompts you, would you be praying for us? We just feel like, uh, you know, in Denver, when we planted the church up there, I often told people that that was like a that was like a turning over the hard soil kind of thing. Denver's a different spiritual climate. And we were doing such hard work just getting the gospel to take root there. But there are other ways that churches can be planted. And one of them is that others have done the hard work and you're reaping the benefit of their labor. Like open your eyes and look at the fields. They're, they're white unto the harvest. And that's really how we feel about the east side. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're white for the harvest. We sense that there's revival coming to the east side. And not because we're bringing it, but because God has gone ahead of us. There's like the dam is about to burn. So send your prayers that way, like intercede for the east side of the city because the Lord's about to come marching in. I am going to be in the Psalms this morning, but I'm going to kind of weave us through scripture, a little golden thread, an Advent tapestry, if you will, this morning. And so if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to open up to uh, Psalm 146, Psalm 146. 
brilliant little Advent text, and I'm going to take us into the prophets a little bit, and we're going to get to Jesus, and I'm going to take us into Paul. And uh, what I want to do is I want to uh, I want to take our lives and situate them somehow inside this great story that's being told in the scriptural record. So Psalm 146 is where I'm going to start this morning. If you have Bibles and you're there, why don't you let me know by saying I'm there? Good. Let's just pause for a moment of prayer. And would you just quiet your heart and become reverent before the Lord? I think it was Mother Teresa who said, if I could get a person to be quiet for five minutes in the presence of God, I could convince them to be a Christian. You know, God's presence, God's presence. It goes before us, it's underneath us, it's above us, it's behind us, it's in front of us, it's everywhere. And Paul said he quoted a pagan philosopher, but he used it for the cause of Christ. He said, in him we live and move and have being. God of very God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that there has not been a moment of our lives when we have not been in your presence. We've been unaware of it for a good deal of our lives, but not a moment have we been outside of your presence. We are in your presence. And this morning, Jesus, you said that wherever two or three are gathered, that you would be there in the midst of them, in the midst of them, encouraging and comforting and urging and healing and delivering. You are here among us, the presence of the risen Christ. And so we acknowledge you. Let every heart prepare him room. We acknowledge you and we open our hearts to you and we receive you. And you know, Lord Jesus, what we need this morning better than we know what we need. We come in with our apparent needs and all of our urgencies, but you have things to give us that are better. You are the gift exceeding every debt. You are greater, ever greater and holy other. And when you come crashing into our lives, all things are made new. Even those things that we didn't know need to be made new, they're made new. And we receive you for that. We thank you for the text of scripture. We thank you for the faithful men and women that put pen to paper and recorded your mighty deeds and your words. We thank you that scripture this morning is a sacrament of the word of God, that what you're going to do this morning is you're going to take it and you're going to lay your hands on it and you're going to bless it and you're going to break it and you're going to feed our bellies with the text of scripture this morning. So we pray that we'd be strengthened and nourished by the word of God. Do it. we're asking. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. The psalmist says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not, he says, put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to, what's the word there? Nothing. But blessed are those, he says, whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, and he remains, what does it say? He's faithful forever. The Hebrew is emet le'olam. He is faithful into the ages. 
I love that. He's faithful into the ages. He was faithful in the past. He is faithful to us in the present. And God will be faithful to us in the ages. There is not a thing that you and I will ever face that God will not be faithful over and inside of. And one day, here's an Advent proclamation for you. One day, that faithfulness that is now hidden inside of history, it's in, with, and under, that faithfulness will be made manifest. We will see God's faithfulness in all of life. He will put it on display for the nations to see. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the psalmist says, the sea and everything in them, and he remains faithful, emet le'olam, faithfulness into the ages. And he upholds, the psalmist says, the cause of the oppressed. And he gives food to the hungry. And the Lord sets prisoners free, and the Lord gives sight to the blind. And the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, and the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and he sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. If you agree with it, say thanks be to God. There it is. Man, don't you love this text? Psalm 146, the psalmist is not just proclaiming a God whose presence sort of hangs up in the clouds above our heads, but he's proclaiming the presence of a God whose presence is made manifest in history. Look back down at verse seven. He's the God who upholds the cause of the oppressed and he gives food to the hungry. That when bellies are hungry, God strides onto the stage of history with food. He puts bread in their hands and bread in their mouths, bread for their bellies. He sustains them. He gives sight to the blind and he lifts up those who are bowed and he loves the righteous and he watches over the foreigner. Our God is a God who acts. He is a God who's present with us. He is a God whose face shines forth in front of us. He's a God whose presence we can rely on. I told you I grew up Pentecostal, charismatic. And man, this is the stuff in scripture that we loved and celebrated so much. And I've been asked over the years, you know, I went to, uh, I went to Oral Roberts University. That's where I got my bachelor's so Pentecostal, charismatic college. And then I went off to a reformed seminary uh, up in Illinois, up in Chicago. And it's such a great experience, but I always felt like I was kind of the odd man out, you know, always having to kind of explain myself to people. So I was always a little bit on my heels, kind of on the defensive, you know, there's, there's you know, we, Pentecostal charismatic, we got a bit of a bad rap, you know, all right. There are some excesses and some abuses. And so sometimes it's hard to dissociate yourself from that stuff. But I would have people ask me, they go, what does it mean to be charismatic? You know, and so I'd say this, I'd say, I think that what it means to be charismatic, if you have to just boil it down to like one thing, we believe that God is right here and right now. And because of that, anything can happen. <laughs> anything can happen. And that's it, guys. Our God isn't a fantasy. If he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, that means that somehow in a way that almost defies language to describe, we are inside of him right now. He's in with and under us that all of the physical things of our environment, that somehow God is the one that didn't just create it and kind of set it in motion. But the scripture would have us understand that at every given moment in time, what God is doing is he's granting being to it. That he's donating life to it. I have breath in my lungs because God is breathing into me. 
Your blood is racing through your veins because God causes it to race inside your veins. Your cells are working the way God designed them to, not because God is some kind of a watchmaker who wound it up and set it going, but because God is speaking to your cells and saying, be alive, be alive, be alive, be alive. That's our God. And if God wasn't this way, guys, I don't need to tell you this morning, but I'll just remind you that we wouldn't have a Bible. The Bible is not a philosophical treatise. And it's plenty philosophical in its way. In him we live and move and have our being is high philosophy, if you ask me. It's quintessential metaphysics, you know? But it ain't a philosophical treatise. What the scripture is, is the record of God's mighty deeds. That what he does is with his righteous right arm, he steps into history and he makes things happen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, the scripture says, and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light and there was light when God speaks things happen welcome to the biblical story this is what God does Genesis is the record of God taking the formlessness and the voidness the Hebrew is tohu wavohu he takes that and he makes form and Order and life out of death, life out of chaos, order out of disorder. When the people of God fell into slavery in Egypt, what did God do? He rose up and he acted on their behalf. When people in the scriptures were barren, when their wombs cried out for life, God spoke into those wombs and there was life. When the people of God found themselves in exile in Babylon, the word of God came. And I'm gonna lift you up just like I did out of Egypt. I'm gonna lift you up out of Babylon and I'm gonna set you back in your own land. I'm going to rebuild you, the prophet says. The Lord says, I will build you up again, O virgin Israel, and you will be rebuilt. God is a God that acts. God is a God that acts. God is a God that intervenes. God is a God that gets involved with us. And if we did not know that from the Old Testament, we would know it certainly from the new, wouldn't we? The word became flesh. Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson says that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's action in history. Jesus is God's action in history. And Jesus did not stride about the dusty roads of Palestine in the first century, waxing eloquent about spiritual matters. But he healed blind eyes and he unstopped deaf ears and the lame leapt for joy in the presence of Jesus. And those that were marginalized, those that were pushed to the edges, Jesus brought near to the middle and he set them at his father's feet. Jesus is God's action in history. Jesus overturned the thrones of the powerful. Jesus lifted up the hungry. Jesus lifted up those who are bowed down. Jesus did everything that Psalm 146 said that God does because Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is God in, in flesh. Guys, I'm here to tell you this morning that our God is a God who acts. 
God is a God who acts. And that is Advent faith. And I think that we need to make sure that we're constantly cultivating this awareness in our hearts. That our God is not just a God who hangs above our heads, but he is a God, as we prayed this morning, he comes startlingly near in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 11. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin. John the Baptist knew Jesus from the time they were little kids. They grew up together. You remember it. Uh, John the Baptist was being formed in Elizabeth's womb and Jesus is being formed in Mary's womb. These two guys are cousins. They knew each other from the earliest days. And John the Baptist is the one who baptizes Jesus. Remember that? Jesus comes to him and John says, you can't. I'm not supposed to baptize you. You gotta baptize me. And Jesus says, no, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. John baptizes Jesus and that gets the ministry of Jesus started. But John is having a difficult time making sense of the Messiah. We're not sure, what are you doing? You don't necessarily fit our understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And so John sends people in verse two to the Messiah, to Jesus, to ask in verse three, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind are receiving sight and the lame are walking and those who have leprosy are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Jesus says, you want to know if the kingdom is really present in me? Look at what is happening around me. All of the things that the prophets prophesied are coming true in me. All of the things that you ever dreamed about and hoped for in human history are coming true in me. Don't be scandalized by the fact that I don't match your description of the Messiah, but look at what is going on around me. Yeah, I might be your cousin. Yeah, I might be an impoverished, you know, prophet wandering the Galilean countryside and I didn't stride into the halls of power and I'm not a king like you thought I was gonna be a king. But the kingdom is breaking out among me. I am God moving, I am God moving. And you just need to know that our God is a God who moves. And I think that you believe that very deeply, but we need to remind ourselves of this constantly. And I, I think that one of the great dangers of, uh, of being a believer is that sometimes we forget this. And sometimes what we do is we, in the best, in the best, with the purest intentions, we become almost sort of Gnostic in our spirituality. That we become believers who just kind of think that God is kind of up there in the clouds somewhere rather than a God who's near to us. And I've heard people say sometimes, sometimes we'll say it with respect to our prayers, the way that we think about prayer. I remember hearing people say years ago, and I've, I still hear people saying this, that they'll say really pious sounding things. Like when it comes to prayer, they'll say, well, prayer doesn't so much change things as it does change me. Now, isn't that the most spiritual sounding thing you've ever heard? <laughs> prayer doesn't so much change circumstances. It doesn't so much get God to do stuff as it changes us. We, we orient our hearts towards what is happening. We come to a place of equanimity, right? Serenity, acceptance of who God is and what God's doing and what is happening around us. And we just, you know, that's, now look, this is very Zen. <laughs> but it's not very Christian. And it's also, it's also logically extraordinarily hypocritical. All right? Because if prayer doesn't so much change things as it does change me, I've got news for you. I am one of the things among the multitude of things. <laughs> So if prayer can change me, then 
can change things. The presumption is I became something different on the other side of the prayer that I wasn't until I started praying. God is the God who acts. One of the great theologians of the 20th century, Robert Jensen says, if you wanna know who the Christian God is, he says, God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead having before lifted Israel up out of Egypt. God is defined by the great theologians. They'll say that God's act and God's being are one. God is, to use the Latin, he's actus purus. He's pure act. He's pure activity. And when we draw near to him, we find that he's the God that doesn't just do things by divine fiat. He doesn't just do it because he decided ahead of time that this was a good thing to do. But God is the God who inclines his ear to our prayers. He's the God that bends his ear to us and gives himself to us. That's the whole reason that the deliverance from Egypt happened. The scripture says that that the Israelites began to groan in their slavery and their cry for help went up to God and God heard it and was concerned about it. And so he moved on their behalf. Pastor Jade said it this morning. God is a God who moves on our behalf. God is a God who cares about the things that touch you. What touches you touches him. What hurts you hurts him. What concerns you concerns him. He has made you part of his body so that when one part of his hand, when one part of his body is injured, when it suffers, when it hurts, when it aches, when it groans, he feels that. The whole body feels it. Do you understand that? Do you understand that in those moments of groaning and weakness and aching in your soul, that that ache does not sit at the outer edges of who God is? But that ache travels straight up the central nervous system of the Godhead. And it makes its way right into the presence of God. And when you hurt, God goes, ouch. And when you ache, God goes, oh, I ache too. And when your belly is hungry, God's belly is hungry. And when you're being oppressed, God is being oppressed. And when your body is riddled with sickness, God feels it too, because he's made you his body. And so he is the God who responds to prayer. Think about all the times in the scriptures that the scripture says that Jesus says to people who are being healed and need deliverance, he says, according to your, according to your faith, it'll be done to you. He moves. I could tell you story after story after story after story of God acting in response to prayer. I remember, I was thinking as I was preparing this message, I was remembering when Mandy and I were finishing up at Oral Roberts University and I knew that I wanted to go on to seminary and we had some, uh, we, there was college debt that was kind of coming to be and we're looking at seminary and we're going seminary like a $50,000 enterprise, you know, and God, how are you gonna take care of this? What are you gonna do? And it turned out the seminary that we were looking at applying to in Chicago, they had this new scholarship program that got put together and it was a full tuition scholarship for people that met certain requirements and qualifications, but still the odds were long odds. It was about a one in say 30 or 40 chance that we would get the scholarship. And I just remember we filled out the application for the scholarship and all the recommendation forms. I did everything I could. I actually picked up a second scholarship packet so I could fill out extra recommendation forms to send them out to other people and every pastor I'd ever known. Could you please send me a letter? And then we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And I'll never forget the phone ring and I pick up the phone and the guy goes, hey, this is Matt from Trinity. Uh, is this Andrew? I said, yeah, it's Andrew. He goes, I've got good for, news for you. You've been accepted to seminary. I go, great. He goes, and I've got better news for you. You ready for this? I go, yeah. He goes, you got the scholarship. And I, man, tears of joy. 
tears of joy. But just this past week, I sat down with this woman. She's in her 50s, and she said, it, I was getting to know her and her story. She attends our church, and she said, she, she said, you know, we've got my dad. She said, my dad, his entire life has been, he's this very scientifically minded guy and has been very skeptical about faith, didn't believe in God, atheist. She said, we have been praying for him for 25 years. 25 years we've been praying for him. And she said this last week, he's now going through some health challenges. This last week, something buckled in him and he finally bent the knee and gave his life over to Jesus. 25 years. Guys, our God is the God who acts. He's the God who bends himself to us. He's the God who steps into history. He's the God who responds when people Pray, last year, some close friends of ours, husband and wife and their beautiful three children, the wife went through some significant mental health challenges and it just about spun their family out of control. She went AWOL for several days, didn't know where she was. We hit our knees with them, praying and interceding on their behalf. God, rise up. God, rise up. If you're the God of the prodigal son, then you're the God of our friends. Would you do whatever you need to do to find her in the darkness of her mind right now and rise up and arrest her with your love and bring her home? And he did. Yes. We've spent the last year walking with them in a process of restoration. And God is causing the wilderness to bloom and rejoice for them. And I just think that there are some of you that are here this morning that you need to be reminded of this that you need to be reminded that God acts. You need to be reminded that God cares for you. You need to be reminded that it doesn't matter what the situation is that you're facing, that God is greater than it. He's greater than it because God raised Jesus from the dead. So tell me what is off the table. He can do it all. And the scripture says that at the end of history, what God will do is he'll take this sin-plagued, death-riddled world and he will baptize it in death and yank it into resurrection life forever. And all things will be made new. So tell me what is that thing that you're facing that just feels so insurmountable? Because either this story is true in its entirety and it's true for you or it is just a huge fraud. And we ought to just go home right now because there's a Packer game on that I want to see, you know? <laughs> from Wisconsin, so, you know, cheesehead. Look, I want to do something. I'm about halfway done with my message, but I want to do something. If you're facing something this morning that just seems insurmountable, would you stick your hand up high? We just need to pray for you this morning. Yeah, all over this room. Real high, okay. Now, if you're sitting by these folks, you can get up out of your seat. You're charismatic enough. Start moving around and lay your hands on these folks. And let's just start some prayer right now for these precious folks. Come on. Come on, and stir up your spirit, stir up your faith here. Let's begin to pray. If you have your prayer language, you can use your prayer language here, and let's get faith rolling in this building. So we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We're praying this morning over every marriage that feels stuck. We say, come unstuck in the name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are praying over every person that's here this morning that's dealing with an estranged family member or friend, somebody that's walked away from the faith, somebody that has ended relationships, somebody that has said no to the friendly confines of relationship and home and family. And we're saying to those prodigals, come home. We're saying to those prodigals, come to your senses this morning. This morning, we're praying over every person in this building that's facing a financial situation that seems like, like, 
like we're two days away from calamity, that kind of thing. Lord, we're speaking to that and we're saying, may the provision of God come in Jesus' name. Lord, we're praying over every body in this room this morning that is riddled with sickness. We're praying over every diagnosis that looks dire and grim. And we're saying, may the God who raised Jesus from the dead release life-giving power into these bodies right now. We're praying over that in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, I am praying this morning over every person here who mentally, there are mental health issues riddled with fear and anxiety, bipolar disorder, borderline personality. Lord, we're saying over all of that, submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, we release, Lord, your life into this building this morning. We release your life into this building this morning. We release your life into this building this morning. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. The God who made the blind to see, the God who unstops deaf ears, the God who makes the lame leap and rejoice, come, 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 we pray. Let the sign of your arrival, let the sign of your arrival be made manifest here and now. We're asking in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Give God praise this morning. That's right. Says you can't take time just to pray in the middle of a message, you know? All right. So our God is a God that moves. God is a God who acts on our behalf. And yet, and yet, biblical faith also affirms and reminds us that there is much that as yet lives beyond our grasp. Which means that we're summoned and Advent reminds us of this, that an inevitable part of biblical faith is that we're called to wait on God. We wait on God. Here's a great Advent text for you. This is Isaiah chapter 35, one of my favorite ones. And I hadn't heard it with these ears until I heard it with Advent ears, but I want you to listen to this. The prophet says that the desert and the parched land are gonna be glad. He's looking ahead to the future. Israel has been devastated by exile. They've been hauled away. Uh, the Assyria first was the ones that, that really beleaguered Israel's life. And then Babylon came along. And so he's looking forward to this great day of restoration. And this is a figural way of talking about that. And he says that the desert and the parched land will be glad. And the wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And the glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. So strengthen, he says, the feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Stay, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground bubbling springs and in the haunts where the jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there and it will be called the way of holiness and it will be for those who walk on the way and the unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about it, but no lion will be there nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. 
but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. And then this, I love this. And they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Brothers and sisters, this also is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But did you notice, but did you notice the tense of the verbs? Will. The desert and the parched land will. The eyes of the blind will. The ears of the deaf will. Gladness and joy will. Sorrow and sighing will. The wicked will not, but the righteous will. Where is it? Will is it's in the future. Where in the future? There's the million dollar question for you. Welcome to biblical faith. We just don't always know. So the prophet looks into the future and he sees this great day of restoration. He sees the new creation bursting upon Israel. He sees the restoration of all things. He sees the banishment of the wicked and the exaltation, the vindication of the righteous. He sees it, but he has no freaking clue when it's gonna be. Sorry for my semi-crass language this morning. We're taking communion. Help me, Lord. But he doesn't have any idea, neither do we. And that, guys, is part of the conundrum of biblical faith, is that we lift our eyes up to heaven and we lift our voices up to heaven and we say, God, come. And we know that God is a God who will come. But when he will come and how he will come and what that will look like and when he will make good on, our prom- on, on his promises to us, we just do not know. And so we're stuck in that space of waiting, we say that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Where do we live? Right in between, right in between. We live in the signs of the kingdom bursting forth around us and yet we live in a space where so much is incomplete. We live in a place where we know that the resurrection of the dead has begun in Jesus Christ. The first shoots of resurrection life, the first blossoms of new creation, we're starting to see it. We can smell the fragrance of eternity. We can smell the food from the feast of the lamb that's coming. And we go, oh, it's gonna be amazing. Right? And then it makes our bellies grumble. Oh, when will it be, oh God? When will it be? And living inside of that is part of what you've signed up for when you've signed up to follow Jesus. I talked with a woman last week, a woman I was getting to know at our church, having her share, asked her to share a little bit of her family story. I said, tell me about your family. And she's married. And she said, I got two, uh, I've got two grown daughters. I said, oh, you know, I mean, you're just expecting good things when you're hearing about people's family. I go, oh, tell me about your daughters. And she said, well, our oldest daughter, is estranged from us. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Tell me about that. What happened? She said, well, when she was 18 years old, she said, you know, we raised our girls in church and we did everything that we knew to set them up, start a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they won't turn from it. She said, we held to that. And when our daughter was 17 or 18 years old, she got mixed up with a boy that she shouldn't have gotten mixed up with. And we saw very quickly this boy started to pull her in directions that she shouldn't have gone. And we just felt powerless. She's 18 years old. She's getting ready to leave our house. We felt powerless to do anything about it. And we encouraged her and try to get her back in. And we did everything that we knew how to do. 
as parents to bring her back home and secure her in the fold. But this boy just kept pulling her further and further into darkness. And at about 20 years old, we stopped hearing from her. I said, my God in heaven, how long did that last? Where is she at? She said, it lasted for 10 years. For 10 years, we prayed for our daughter to come home. God, just give us any sign that she's okay and that she's fine. We just wanna know that she's all right. God, God, be her God in a way that we can't be her mama and her dad. Right now, would you help us, oh Lord? And she said, after 10 years, we got a phone call from, her, from our daughter. She was pregnant and she was about to have, she called us and she said, hey mom, you're about to have a grandbaby and I wanna come and see you guys again. The Lord had prompted their daughter to start making her way back home, just like the parable of the prodigal son, right? You have that moment where you come to your senses. You go, what am I doing out here? So she started making her way back home. And this woman that I was talking to, they got to meet their, their grandson, there's a process of restoration started with the daughter. They wound up, the daughter wound up getting pregnant again and somewhere in the middle of the second pregnancy, all of a sudden she started pulling away one more time. I said, you can't be serious. She said, no. And within the last six months, she's cut us off one more time and we don't have any idea where she is. Can you imagine that? Yeah, like, I mean, you live the prodigal son's story and you think, oh, that's it. Now we've got her back. Now we live happily ever after, right? The prodigal in Luke 15 doesn't come home as far as we know and then wander off again. In Luke 15, it's happily ever after. Bring the robe and the sandals and the ring and the crown and slaughter the fatted calf. And we go, yay, it's happened, right? And then when we start walking that familiar path in our own lives and that, like we expect that the conclusion is gonna be the same conclusion. And here is this family, they've gotten thrown back into the prodigal daughter part two. What? How is that fair? How is that right? How is that good? I said, what are you doing then? What, how, do you, how are you posturing yourself in your heart? She said, we're pouring out our tears before the Lord and we're keeping the porch light on. Guys, that's Advent faith. That's Advent faith. If I've ever, if ever I've heard it, that we are those who have tasted the signs of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. And yet there is so much that is unfulfilled. So what do we do? We pour out our tears. We pour out our agony before the Lord. We pour out our ache before the Lord and we keep the porch light on. And we sit there and we sit there looking for the signs of the kingdom of God coming we look to the Eastern horizon for that moment when the son of God will split the skies and come down and his judgments will be true and righteous and sure. And every evil thing that's blighted our world, he will unmake it and reinvent our world. And until then, we wait, we wait, we wait. Listen to the words of the half-brother of Jesus, James. James says in James 5 and verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Everybody say, be patient. Be patient, be patient. How long do we need to be patient for? As long as it takes. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Do you see, he says, how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? Patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. Give me the universal symbol for how much control 
the farmer has over the autumn and the spring rains? Goose egg. Patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. And you too, he says, be patient and stand firm. Can you say stand firm? Do you know what the Greek there literally says? Steady your hearts. And if you've been in waiting, you know that's the thing that you have to do. Be patient, he says, steady your heart. Steady your heart. And I know that in this room this morning, there are some of you that have been waiting forever for something. And it just feels like you're almost out of gas in the waiting. Steady your heart. Okay. Don't get panicky. And dear God, don't opt out of this. And you know that is the temptation, isn't it? You know, this whole thing is a fraud. It's a scam. God's not faithful. God's not gonna move. God is not real. This is all just a bunch of, this is a bunch of hoo-ha that the church has put together. This is opium for the masses is what it is. It ain't real. And James says, be patient. Steady. Steady your hearts. Because the Lord's coming is near. And don't get mad at each other. Haven't you noticed that too? That sometimes when you're in a space of waiting, what you do is you get all ornery at the people around you. You start snapping at people and nitpicking and pointing the finger and steady your heart because the Lord's coming is near. And don't you grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged for the judge is standing at the door. And if you find yourself in a space of agonized waiting this morning, I just want to say to you, welcome to the party. I know this is not like super encouraging, but welcome to the party. Do you know that there's not a person? And I just need to, sometimes we think when we're in that space of waiting, we think we're the only ones. We go, oh, God's mad at me and the system is broken for me. And there's 200 people in this room and for 199 of them, everything is just going great for. But for me, you know, there's some flawed way that I'm approaching my faith and God is mad at me and that's, not, and that's why he's not moving. And somewhere along the line, I forgot, like I didn't get the memo that Christianity means your best life now and it's busted for me. It's not true. Sitting with a guy last week, a single man in his early 30s, desperately wants to be married, desperately wants to be married. And we're talking, we've talked about this several times and he's held that before the Lord now for most of his adult life and aches to be married and has never been in a serious relationship. And it's getting to that point where it's just, it's just on the threshold of bitterness. Why won't God do this for me? What is wrong with me? I feel like I'm being punished by God, right? The bitterness that starts to creep into your soul when you're waiting. And I said to him, man, I appreciate the space of waiting that you're in. And I appreciate that this is hard. I said, but don't you for a second think that there is not a person in this room, we were sitting at a coffee shop, that is not in some way, shape or form in their life on their knees before the Lord going, God, how long? Even if they're not believers, we've got that. That, oh, that desperation, that the thing that's wrong, the thing that we ache for, that that would be made right in some way, shape, or form. And listen, I've got news for you. None of us picks the specific ache that we do have. And none of us would pick it. 
And think about all of those women that can't conceive children. They wouldn't have elected that. And then there are young women that get pregnant at 17 years old or 21 years old, and it was like nothing to them. Why is it one and not the other? Why can, can, we, can we trade our agonies? For whatever reason, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. In some way, shape, or form, all of us are in the ache. All of us are in the agony. All of us are in the waiting and we're holding ourselves up before the Lord saying, God, how long will it be before you come? One of the great thinkers of our day is a guy that ministered at an Episcopal church not far down the road uh, over there in Pueblo. His name is Ephraim Radner. He's an Episcopal priest. And he wrote this great book talking about the figural language of scripture. And he says, you know, he's talking in one of the chapters, he's talking about how marriage and celibacy are both in their ways signs of the church's life. They're signs of the church's life. So the institution of marriage, but then also the vow and the call of celibacy to remain single. And he says, if marriage reminds us that one day what we're going to have is consummation, completion, arrival, he says, that's a symbol of the life that is to come. He said, but celibacy is maybe the more important and potent symbol of the church in this age. That there's a sense in which all of us are celibate. And God, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for our bridegroom, Jesus. We're waiting. And in that space of waiting, the temptation is to give ourselves to other lovers, lesser gods. And so what the church does is the church says, "Uh -uh 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 -uh. I belong to Jesus Christ. I belong to Jesus Christ. And if I have to wait my whole long life for the completion of my hope, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is who I am pledged to. He put the ring of engagement on my finger and I belong to him. Guys, that's Advent hope. Advent hope is that Jesus made the proposal to us and by his spirit, he's with us and he's speaking to us and he's reminding us. But Advent is not the completion yet of our hope. We're looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We're waiting for the kingdom to arrive and for all of us are. And so this is what Paul says about our situation in Romans 8. Paul says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, the first fruits of the spirit. It's not the full harvest of the spirit. But it's the first fruits of the spirit. Any gardeners in the room? Any? It's hard in Colorado, I know. My dad, I'm from central Wisconsin. My dad is like this epic tomato farmer. He's a great gardener. But he, these tomato plants are just amazing. Like tomato plants, like at least the size of this Christmas tree, okay? Things just grow different up in the north. And, he, and, and the gourds of these plants are like cantaloupes, huge tomatoes. And we always just looked forward to, you know, you'd see the green things kind of on there and they're sort of growing. And then you'd wake up one morning and all of a sudden a few of them are red, right? Oh, there's a delicious, luscious gourds, tomato plants, the juice running down your face, you know? That's the first fruit. And we'd see hundreds more green ones sitting there and you'd go, oh, there's more to come. And Paul is saying that's the situation that we live in, that we taste of the spirit. That's the first taste of the eschaton, the first taste of the life of the age to come. But I got news for you this morning. There is more to come. And meanwhile, what we do is we groan and we wait. 
Paul says we're waiting eagerly for our adoption to sonship, which is the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Biblical faith deals honestly with our situation by naming our situation accurately. We're in the groan. We're in the groan. We're in the groan. I found myself reading recently. I've just been trying to orient myself in the Advent season. And are there symbols of Advent in our culture? Are there symbols of Advent in our time? And in American history, one of the great symbols, kind of Advent symbols, Advent moments, is what happened after the Civil War. You know, one of the great blights in our nation's history is the blight of slavery. Emancipation Proclamation, the end of the Civil War. You would think that in our country things would have gotten better, but they did not. And as many historians will tell us, especially in the South, things got worse for people of African descent. Things got worse. Federal troops pull out of the South, okay? So the protection is gone. The laws have changed. The slaves are technically freed. And yet the animus in the South towards African-Americans, all of a sudden it goes into overdrive. And between 1880 and 1940, one of the things, this is one of the darkest aspects of our nation's history is that lynching became commonplace in this country, in this country. 5,000, at least 5,000 black people were lynched between 1880 and 1940. And sometimes the crowds that would gather would be crowds of 20,000 people. And it was celebrated that this is a good thing, that this is a good thing. James Cone, one of the great historians and theologians of the church in the 20th century, charts this. He has this great book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, where he tries to tell the story of the lynching tree through the prism of the cross, the paradigm of the cross. And he says, between that time period, 1880 and 1940, one of the things that you see, even though it was a time of great, it was great terror for people of African descent in our country. He says, but one of the things that you see in the churches is that the cross all of a sudden becomes this great symbol that they sing about the cross and they preach about the cross and they encourage one another with the cross because what they experienced in the cross was that God had somehow drawn near, that God knew what it was like to be lynched, that God knew what it was like to be pushed to the side, that God knew what it was like to be abused and mistreated. God knew what it was like to be pushed out of the center of power. God knew what it was like to be hung on a tree. And they found in Jesus Christ a God who had completely identified with their situation and it gave them hope. That's what Paul is saying about our experience of the God made known in Jesus and poured out by the Holy Spirit. That God is not just a God who's sitting here over in the future going, come on guys, hang on, it's gonna be okay. But what God does is he comes among us And no matter what we go through and no matter what we experience, God says, I've made you mine. I have solidarity with you. That's the whole meaning of the incarnation. That God so identifies himself with us that there is not a thing that we could ever go through. This is what Hebrews says, that we don't have a a high priest that doesn't know what we've gone through, but our high priest is one who has been tempted and tested and tried in every way just like we are, yet was without sin. And he knows what it's like to be human. And so he's merciful and he's sympathetic and he is Emmanuel, which means... God with us, God with us, God with us. If you're in a space of groaning, if you're in a space of agonized waiting, God is with you and God will come. God will come. 
Civil rights came. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came. And some of those old structures and systems began to be destroyed. And they are still being destroyed because our God is an Advent God. And he may be long in coming, but come he will. Come he will. And his coming will be finally and fully at the end of all things. But he is among us even now to deconstruct all of those things, to destroy the root of sin in our midst. He's the God who comes among us. And so Paul picks up in verse 26 of Romans 8 and he says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is interceding for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know in all things that God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Creation groans, we groan, and the Spirit groans with us. So I want you to quiet your hearts here as we begin to orient ourselves towards communion. Every single one of us in this room is carrying a groan. We're carrying an ache. <clears throat> We're carrying an agony. We're carrying a how long, O oh Lord? A how long, O oh Lord? And I want you just to begin to lift that up before the Lord. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Oh, we need you, Lord Jesus. We need you. We need you. We need you. We need you. There are some of us that are facing very personal groans, very personal groans. And we're saying, come, Lord Jesus. We're saying, flood and fill, Holy Spirit. Come, oh God, come, oh God, come, oh God. There are some of us that are facing groans that, um, they're borrowed groans. They're the groans of other people, groans that, of people that we're close to. And what they're walking through, we're walking through with them and it hurts us. And we're saying, come, Lord Jesus, to that. Come, Lord Jesus, to that. And we're thanking you this morning that you are not a God who's far, but you are a God who's near. You are a God who's pledged yourself to us. You are a God who has promised to be with us, to be with us in our heartache, to be with us, to be with us even in those places where we feel like we have been abandoned by God. God knows what it's like to be abandoned by God because God, the son of God from the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we meet Emmanuel, we meet God with us in a way that we could never have even imagined. And I'm praying this morning that you would flood and fill us with your Holy Spirit. I'm praying this morning that you would feed us with the bread of your presence, that you would satisfy our thirst with the wine, the drink of eternal life, that we'd find ourselves satisfied in you. So do it, Lord, we pray. Now, why don't you stand with me as we prepare our hearts for the table? As we come to the table, we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Lord Jesus, we're calling your presence down upon bread and cup. We're calling your presence down upon the elements. We know that by themselves they are nothing, but in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, they become an invitation to feast at the table and to know that you are with us now and to be reminded that you're leading us from glory to glory, that you're taking us to our destination in you. So we trust you for that. We trust you for that. Come and feed our bellies. Come and satisfy our thirst. 
come and remind us that we are already tucked away in the divine presence, made sharers in the divine life. Do it, we're asking in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com. Thank you.